When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to Dummy, a twice-weekly conversation among editors and friends of Howler magazine. My name is George Qureshi and I am the editor of Howler. Joining me in our tiny studio in Miami, he is the only member of our team to have scored for Arsenal to date, and he is now a scout for the Gunners, Danny Carbassoon. Hey George, how's it going? I'm pretty good. And joining me in Bristol, England, from Bristol, England, not Connecticut, David Goldblatt, the author of The Ball is Round and Pucci Ball Nation. Welcome, David. Evening, George. Coming up on the show, we'll talk about a nerve-wracking, then absolutely thrilling, but ultimately kind of disappointing night for Team USA. We'll hear from Alexander Abnos, an editor for Howler, who, separate from that, is embedded with the U.S. national team as the writer for USsoccer.com during the World Cup. We'll hear from Alex about the mood in camp going into the final game against Germany, the final group game, hopefully not the final game of the tournament. We are very excited to welcome Steve Nash to the show. He's best known as a two-time MVP of the NBA, but of course we know that he's also a soccer nut, and he'll be telling us about his trip down to Brazil to watch some games and about his charity soccer game that is happening tomorrow in New York City. We'll also talk to Chris Gaffney, who is closely following and participating, I believe, in the protests down in Rio de Janeiro. So, a very exciting show, but we have to start with USA-Portugal. I guess we have to. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about this game. I, I do. It's a fascinating game. Actually. No, you must. I insist. You must. You must talk about it. Are you now supporting the U.S., David, because England is out? I'm supporting the U.S. I didn't know I was supporting the U.S., but it was just one of those games. I was sort of half concentrating for the first kind of 45, 50 minutes. And then when the uh, Jermaine Jones equalizer came, I was out of my seat and I knew who I was supporting. Yeah, it was a, it was a sensational game sensational you know how it is you don't actually find out you know when 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 the chips are down you find out actually whose side you're on that's right that's totally right so this was a sort of a, a mirror of the game uh, against ghana where we started out really well and ended really well and for the most of the game we were totally defensive i i saw the stat i think you brought up the stat the u.s had more clearances in that game than in any game in the world cup since 1966 uh which is incredible. This game, Nani scores a goal in the fifth minute. Then we play extremely well. We totally control the game for, for most of the game. I mean, you know, aside from, you know, 
unfortunately hitting the post in in the 95th minute we give up just a terrible terrible a great goal but just terrible if you're a US fan uh Danny I want to talk about the defensive breakdowns that, that led to this the first one is pretty obvious a uh, lack of concentration take us through them a couple things happened I think a couple things and people were I think a lot of people pointed at Michael Bradley because he gave the ball up that resulted in the Cristiano Ronaldo cross an eventual goal but if you go back even a little step further, uh, and and it's harsh to point out DeAndre Yedlin because I thought when he came on, especially for his World Cup debut at such a young age, he did quite a good job. But the inexperience kind of showed when we broke, he got the ball and ran to the corner, tried to beat his man and put a cross in uh, with Wondolowski, I think, getting into the box, but not really, not really being there. And, and the ball actually came back out to him. And at this point, there was about a minute and a half left on the clock, I think, or maybe two minutes. And you're and screaming, like, just take it to the corner flag. Take it to the corner flag, take it to the corner flag. The ball is actually rolling to the corner flag, about to roll off the pitch for our throw-in, and Yedlin stops. He puts his foot on the ball and starts shielding. If the ball had actually rolled off the pitch, I think, and we could have wasted another probably 30 <laughs> seconds yeah. uh, in getting Johnson to come up or take the throw. What happens is they get the throw, they end up clearing it. A header goes to Michael Bradley, who, in, I guess, the second... I suppose you can say guilty party, gets caught in possession at the midfield, and then the ball gets sprayed out wide to a one Cristiano Ronaldo. And and I think this is where, where the next little bit of uh, frustration comes in for U.S. fans is because we actually did have numbers back in this situation. We were defending. Um, we were defending, yeah. And one of the most important things I learned, I think one of the things that stuck out to me the most when I was at Arsenal and being converted from a striker to a defender was if you're unable to make an immediate impact on the play defensively, just run in a straight line back towards the goal so you can at least be in and around the goal area. Sure. Unfortunately, Beckerman, Jones, and Omar Gonzalez all kind of got caught ball watching, kind of just drifting towards Ronaldo and the ball instead of actually being in more central areas. Varela made a nice run into the box, and Cristiano Ronaldo played an excellent ball uh, into the box. Tim Howard was kind of caught in you know no man's right. land. It was, do I come? Do I stay? It was an excellent ball, but I would say I'm going to call out Gonzalez there, especially because he was brought in basically to stand there in the middle of the box and clear out anything that came in. Yeah, exactly. And that, I think that's the frustrating part, because if you look at the... And I went back and looked at the ESPN as a cool tactical, the tactical camera from above the pitch. And if you look at that camera, there's literally three guys marking space at the top right-hand corner of our box, and there's nothing around there. And even if a ball had been played in into the box and they hadn't scored and we did manage to get a header out, there was actually Portuguese players all kind of open at the top of the box surrounding waiting for the ball to come back out. Fabian Johnson, despite having a fantastic game, also let kind of Varela run past him, mm-hmm. um, and Jeff Cameron got caught out, and, and they scored a you know a goal that equalized it right at the end. Okay, so we've talked about everything that went wrong. I, I want to focus a little bit on the good stuff, because there was a lot of it. We held possession, we were attacking, we were positive. Michael Bradley could have scored, he had a point-blank shot, cleared off the line. People were worried after Josie went down about how we would attack, and I think that Klinsman made a lot of great decisions, not only with the starting lineup and, and setting up how we would play from the beginning, but also with the substitutions that he made. Right off the bat, I know, I know earlier we were saying, who who replaces Josie? <laughs> we are like, oh, is it Wando or Aaron Johansson? It ended up being Clint Dempsey and a complete change of the formation. We, we played with a 4-5-1. Probably the biggest standout of the game was Fabian Johnson, and I think Fabian actually came out in this game uh, doing so well because when Postiga got injured, Ronaldo kind of started drifting inside, and their 4-3-3 turned into more of a 4-4-2 with a huge gap where Ronaldo was down that left-hand side. So 
Fabian Johnson had all sorts of space ahead of him, mm-hmm. and, and and most of the attacking came down that side. Most of the attacking came down that side. Even if it wasn't Johnson attacking, like even when Yedlin came on, they still exploited that mm-hmm. that side quite a bit. Also, with the fact that Ronaldo started out uh, wide left, Klinsman also put Jermaine Jones out on the right, so he switched Jones from starting on, on the left side of the midfield to the right side of the midfield to provide Johnson with a bit of cover when he did go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all noticed that even in the Ghana game, Johnson was going forward quite a bit and doing it quite well. He was able to do it much more against Portugal, and I think a majority of our of our great attacks came down that side. You know, it, it's it's hard to look at this game because... You know, after two games, we have four points, and if we had said this before the World <laughs> Cup be started, so we would be buzzing. Yeah, you say we we beat Ghana and Drew against Portugal, and heading into the final game, um, only needing a you know a draw, and still being able to go through with a loss against Germany, depending on what happens in the other game. And, but I think that shows just how far you know even we've come and what our expectations are for this team. And even you know when the final whistle blew yesterday, everybody was just it was take, it felt like we lost. David, yeah. we need some distance here. You can provide that, and as a fan of England. You're in a very special place to give us some perspective. <laughs> should we be should we be disappointed that we gave up two points in the last seconds of the game, or should we be super excited and happy that we have four points in the group of death and we're winning the group of death for a good ten fifteen minutes last night? You should be both. I mean, it just seemed to me when I was watching it, it was like this is the stuff that kind of World Cup myths are made of. This is the kind of narrative moments and kind of emotional ambiguity that makes these competitions so you know extraordinary to follow your team and I felt jealous not merely that you were playing well and still had a chance of qualifying but that it was such a kind of deliciously dramatic moment I want to know how much you guys had invested in the possibility of qualifying there and then for those few short minutes Oh man, I am terrified of needing to, of playing Germany with them needing points. It's, that's a terrifying prospect, actually. I was really, before the tournament, I was thinking, okay, we're going to get to Germany and they will be through and it won't be a big deal. Then I thought, okay, we're going to get to Germany and we won't need points and it won't be a big deal. Now we're playing them. We, we both need points. It's not a good situation. I'm hoping, I guess I'm hoping for us an 82 Austria Germany situation. I know we won't get it. Um, <laughs> but that's when, you know, Austria and West Germany played a very boring game when both teams knew they, they could get through with a, a, a German win w- a, in a small margin and they really screwed Algeria over. Okay. Uh, I want to really briefly look at the scenarios for the U.S. going through. We go through and we will top group G with a win. Okay. So that means we would play the second place team from group H. And I don't think we know who that is yet. Uh, it could be Russia, it could be yeah. South Korea and and uh, Algeria, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty wide open. A second place finish, which would happen if Germany wins, and I think yeah, if the result goes our way, if Portugal keeps it close, yeah. then we would go second place. We'd probably play Belgium, or maybe definitely play Belgium. I'm, I'm not quite sure actually. The, the scenarios get kind of complicated, but we basically we don't want Ghana to win by a large margin. Okay, I would really love to know what the mood is like in the Team USA camp after that game. Luckily, we have someone who can tell us. Alexander Avnos is an editor for Howler, but he is also, separately from that, covering the U.S. men's national team all summer for USsoccer.com. He's traveling with the team. He was with them in Manaus, and as soon as they landed today in Sao Paulo, he recorded this for us. Here's Alex. Hey, 
Hey, how's it going? This is Alex Abnos coming to you from Brazil. I was at the United States 2-2 draw with Portugal yesterday, and I'm here to report some breaking news. Uh, that game was crazy, and also very, very humid, and also weirdly buggy, at least up in the press level. Um, but in the parts of the match that I was able to watch when a giant moth wasn't blocking my view, uh, what struck me was just how American this game felt. And a couple players said pretty much exactly that. If that's the American style, well, I mean, at least it's unique. It was a fantastic game to watch, and uh, outside of the heartbreak, most U.S. fans would agree. But in all seriousness, the mood after the game was kind of strange. I mean, on one hand, you could tell all the players were in some degree of shock. I don't think that's avoidable after a result like that coming in the last minute. But when they spoke, they had uniformly optimistic things to say. Uh, they know that in the larger scheme of things, four points after two games really isn't bad. I think they all were expecting the Germany game to be as important as it ended up being. So really, this is you know just kind of nice that they're pretty much right on track instead of ahead of schedule. Uh, what I'll definitely remember about this game is uh, Jermaine Jones's goal. I mean, I think when we're done with the World Cup, we'll be able to rank that among the finest goals the U.S. have ever scored in the tournament. Uh, Jones told reporters after the game that his teammates were telling him to shoot more at halftime. So uh, when he got the ball at the top of the box, all he heard was DeMarcus Beasley just behind him telling him to shoot. And uh, that turned out to be pretty good advice, huh? It was an outstanding goal uh, for a guy that's had a couple just fantastic games so far in Brazil. And uh, lastly, I can't get through this report without mentioning the conditions again. Uh, while it was very, very humid in Manaus, I don't really think it was as bad as it could have been, um, especially if the match had been played during the daytime. Uh, I was also at the warm-up game in Jacksonville. That honestly felt worse uh, to me in terms of humidity and in terms of heat. Uh, the effect physically on the players, uh, especially in a quick turnaround, you know, they play Germany on Thursday, uh, will be really important in determining who starts and who sits in what is now a totally crucial game, just like we all expected it to be. This is Alex Abnos signing off from Brazil. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will talk about our neighbors to the south, Team USA's biggest rival, the ones who canonize San Zussi, Mexico. I've watched all every Mexico game. I'm impressed with Mexico. They look nothing like the team that went through qualifying and sort of just snuck into the tournament, uh, thanks to Graham Zussi. I will say that no team has gotten worse calls from the referees than Mexico, and they've still managed to do what they need to do to qualify for the next round. Uh, Bosnia maybe is a close second, having that goal called offside. But they deserve a lot of credit, Mexico. They... they they have played a not a super easy group. It's a, been a pretty tough group. Brazil's not not so easy. Croatia's a good team. Cameroon is self-destructive, but I'm doing the thing where I totally over-introduce this segment. I want to get your thoughts, Danny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, as you said it, I, I think... Mexico struggled through qualifying so badly and, and, but, but I always, I, I always had the feeling that if they did make it to the World Cup, then they would kind of reset themselves and come in all guns blazing. And I think they've done that. Um, I think one interesting thing about this Mexico team is that while, you know, even last, uh, last episode, we were talking about the effects of Tiki Taka across, uh, all the world football and how the high press, high energy, uh, everything is in right now. Mexico today, especially, we're happy sitting back with with five uh, with five backs and then transitioning quite quickly. And they were happy letting a team 
uh, like Croatia with with all these these playmakers, you know, just keep the ball ahead of them, and then kind of pick them off at the right time. And Croatia were frustrated today that you know they needed a win uh, mm-hmm. to go through. So eventually they brought on Kovacic um, and went a bit more offensive. And then when they did that, they they became a little susceptible at the back, and Mexico really turned it on and and started to capitalize on their their counters. So this Mexico team's exciting, man. I mean, they got they have a lot of really good players. Uh, they definitely didn't live up to expectations in qualifying, but now they're here. They mean business. Well, it's not so bad when you have a poor man's Wondolowski like uh, Chicharito to bring on as a substitute, right? <laughs> exactly, and I mean he's he scored a classic Chicharito goal. You know, there's a the, I would say I would say a classic Wondolowski goal, the, but he scored a classic Wondolowski goal. He looks up to the guy and then got on the end of the cross and uh, converted at the back post. But yeah, I think they're they're definitely going to be a huge threat, and and for Chicharito especially, that's huge because that gives him a lot of confidence going into uh, into the rest of the term as well. A guy that has you know struggled over the past year probably for confidence. David, you were watching the Brazil game. They won pretty easily in the end, but Cameroon gave them a scare. Yeah, I think they I think yeah. 4-1 kind of flattered them. And if it wasn't for Neymar, I think they would be really really struggling. You know, and Cameroon just threw away they threw away uh, a goal at the end with their absurd free kick. Their defense is, you know, as weak as any Brazil are going to face. I think it's going to be quite a wake-up call for them when they play a team with a little bit more quality. Can I also say, the best thing about the Mexico team, tell me, is the coach a ringer for Bud Costello or what? Chris Farley. Oh, totally. Chris Farley would Completely play him. If he were still alive, Chris Farley would is a dead ringer. Like Just the, the manic excitement that overcomes him every time Mexico does anything good or gets a call against them or anything. He's amazing. I mean, I love that guy. Had you heard of him before, David? He's pleasingly rectangular. Yes. Yeah, exactly. He's a schlub. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we've talked about Mexico all, all, all that we can. Uh, we are going to move on. Uh, we have a quick break coming up, and then we will speak with Chris Gaffney about the protests down in Rio de Janeiro. Chris is a college professor and a journalist, and he has some really great insight into the social aspect of what's going on off the field and actually in the stadiums this time. Uh, it's played a big role in this World Cup, and we will talk to Chris when we get back. On the line from Rio de Janeiro is Christopher Gaffney. He is a professor of geography at a federal university in Rio. I think he made that easy for me to do the introduction. I'm sure that there's a more specific title that he has. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thanks, George. It's great to be on. Chris, you've been writing stories for the website that I'm editing, soccer.fusion.net, about sort of what's going on outside of the stadiums, which I think is really interesting, uh, especially for this World Cup. And one thing that I want to ask you about specifically, it's an episode that I sort of made light of on the last episode that I thought was really funny, but you had a, a different read on it, and I thought it was a really smart read. I'm talking about the Chilean fans that sort of rushed into the Maracana. Now, as a professor of geography, you take space, urban space in this case, and sort of talk about how it... I'm sorry, you know what? You're going to do this much better than I will. Why don't you tell us? <laughs> what you... So we've had two cases of invasions of the Maracana now, one with the Argentines against Bosnia and then the Chileans against Spain. In my work, I've principally, I've looked at stadiums a lot and thinking about stadiums as kind of miniature cities, the home of the fans, right? And so we have home teams, visiting teams. And so if it's your home, you have a space in the home, and usually we pay rent for spaces in the home or to live. And so what we've seen with the World Cup is a scarcity of, you know, it's kind of an artificial scarcity in a way because they've reduced the capacity of the stadiums. And, you know, it's, a, of course, a huge event and such. And so the ticket prices are, are really expensive. And so people can't afford to get in. 
And so when they do that, they try to invade the space. It's as if the, the fan doesn't have a home. And so in order to get a home, he has to invade it when the, when the tickets are unavailable. But we see the same thing in the cities, right? And so if we see the scarcity of spaces in the stadium, we also see a scarcity, actually a false scarcity of housing in the city for the poor. In Rio, when the poor try to invade public buildings to try to conquer their constitutionally guaranteed rights to housing, they're also violently expelled from the stadium, from, from the city. We see similar processes happening in both. Oh, so I like this idea of the stadium representing a space for fans and a fan's home being in the stadium because I think you're right. With ticket prices very, very high, you're basically pricing out most people, um, especially in, in a country like Brazil. What does that leave fans to? It leaves them to, to the bars, as you mentioned. It leaves them to sitting at home. It excludes them, right? I mean, so this is an attempt by these fans to sort of be involved in the World Cup in a way, and they're being physically, forcibly kept out. Right. The majority of people can't afford to go to these games. And so a lot of these Chileans have driven from Chile. You know, they didn't fly. A lot of them drove from Chile to go to these games. And it means you know, an incredible amount to them because it's the only time in their life they'll probably even come close to seeing a World Cup game just because it's in Brazil. And so the, the kind of desperation and the inability to pay for tickets. And a lot of people went with money to buy scalp tickets. But as I, as I was standing outside the stadium, I saw one guy trying to sell three cheap seats, like the upper level seats, not cheap, but they're for, for 2,500 US for three tickets to this game for a first round game in the World Cup. That just drives people crazy. They've been trying to get tickets, been trying to get tickets. They can't get them. They've saved up all their money for this. And when they get there, the scalping is so outrageous that they can't do it. And we see, of course, this is repeated in the city when we see the exclusion of the poor, the securitization of public spaces where you have all these VIP passes, and if you have the right wristband, you can go into some part of the stadium. But the same applies in the city. If you have the right kind of identity card, or the, you wear the right clothes, or you know the right people, then you can get into certain spaces of the city. And so what we're seeing with the privatization and the militarization and the corporatization of public spaces like the Maracanã, we see reflected in other urban elements as well. Can you give me a quick update, Chris, on what's going on Outside with, with the protests, we've seen photographs of the, the most affecting one that I saw was shared with me by David. It showed a protester being held down while the police basically sprayed, I believe it was pepper spray, directly into his eyes. Uh, and you, you write about a 19-year-old who was shot in the back by police in Rio, I believe. What, what's going on? Getting pepper sprayed and tear gassed and having bombs thrown at you has become kind of routine since last year. And the, the military police have a clear mandate to beat people up and or have arbitrary arrests and to use maximum force to control whatever's going on. What we saw last night actually was a big firefight in this place called the Complexo Jalimão, which is a big favela complex in the north of the city where two teenage boys were killed and a couple cops were actually killed as well. And so we have the, the everyday struggles for territorial dominance going on in Rio between drug trafficking factions and also between police factions, between the police and the drug traffickers. And so all this stuff is going on while the World Cup is happening. And today we will see a protest in Copacabana that will go from one of the favelas in Copacabana down to the Fan Fest to protest police violence. So it should be quite a, quite a hot afternoon down on the beach with the Brazilian team playing at five and protests and police and tourists. It's going to be quite a scene.
Interesting. Okay. I spoke with a journalist who sort of dismissed the protest he saw. He was like, you know, it was more, it was a lot more journalists with their cameras out than, than actual protesters. And I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe you were at the wrong protest. You point out in your story that if bullets are flying and bombs are going off, then journalists typically aren't there. It's, it's really people are scrambling, running away, like figuring out how to survive, right? Yeah, exactly. That's true. And I think that the dismissiveness on the part of the international media relative to the protests, the size of the protests, has to do with their expectations and not the reality of what's going on. When we look at why the protests are not as big, there are a number of reasons. One is that the police violence is absolute. I mean, you know, if you have a protest during the World Cup, the police will inevitably tear gas and rubber bullet and hit you. And you have to risk your own safety to go out and protest during the World Cup. A second element is that tons of people are working. This party in Brazil does not happen without massive amounts of Brazilians not enjoying the party, but actually working at the party. So people are working their butts off for this World Cup to happen, and there's no time to protest. Another reason is that a lot of people are on holiday, ones that aren't working, like schools are off, so teachers are off, and they're at home with their kids because one of the easiest way to clean the streets is to not have school. And so you keep school buses off, you keep parents at home, and so this is a way of appropriating the city, and so people are taking care of their kids and not out protesting. And then people are enjoying the World Cup, which is their right to do. And it's hard to reconcile the tension between the love of football and the love of the World Cup and the real anger towards FIFA and the way the, the, the Brazilian government has run the World Cup. Have protests, in your opinion, been smaller than anticipated? Or it sounds like the intensity is there, but maybe it's been a little fewer in number, the people protesting. Yeah, the numbers are smaller than I would have thought. That's a little troubling that the numbers aren't there. But again, the intensity has perhaps increased. The people that are willing to go put their bodies on the line for their message are more radical at one end of the political spectrum or another. And so we have not extreme left, but very far left groups, anarchist, black bloc, all kinds of Marxist elements, not that Marxism is bad, but Leninist, Marxist, pseudo loonies And then the right wing as well is out there trying to delegitimize the government. And so it's a, it's a really intense protest when it happens, but it tends to be a lot smaller than the, than the ones we saw last year. Okay. Uh, Christopher Gaffney, thanks so much for joining us. You are on Twitter at Geostadia, and you, I hope, will join us again uh, for another update uh, a little bit later on in the tournament. Please let me know. I'll come back anytime. Some really fascinating stuff from Dr. Chris Gaffney there. Uh, David, something we haven't discussed is the perennial soccer problems of racism and homophobia inside the stadiums. We've, we've seen that a lot in Europe in recent years. We have the Mexican fans chanting a derogatory term for homosexual every time the other team takes a goal kick. FIFA and the Mexican Federation, including the coach that we love so much, have defended this. And we've also seen some pictures of from various games, different games, of white fans in blackface. Here's what I want to say about this. FIFA has done its best to scrub uh, any personality, good or bad, from the stadiums. How is this stuff still getting through? <laughs> well, and also, you know, attempted to uh, claim its uh, its universal and anti-racist and anti-discriminatory character at every turn. I mean, these are the guys who say, for the game, for the planet. I mean, you know, if we take them at their word, then you have to take this stuff really seriously. I mean, blackface in a way is the kind of easiest one. For me, it just seems sort of unambiguously, totally and utterly out of order. And here we are, you know, in the society that imported the most forced labor for Africa, from Africa during the Middle Passage, you know, to Brazil. And people are in blackface, a known historic form of, you know, a derogatory 
uh, way of depicting black people. I mean, come on. It's like, stop it. That is not on. Don't you think that when they have, anytime you enter a stadium with like a bag, they check your bag for, I don't know, weapons or musical instruments now. Couldn't they just like get the shoe polish out too and just try to, you know, eradicate this problem by, by not letting people bring this in? is it. I've been seeing on Twitter from a number of journalists that I followed them. They're taking fruit. You can't take a banana into the stadium. Well, that might be an, an that might be an anti-racist measure as well. <laughs> well, maybe I think actually this was a nutrition <laughs> issue, but hey, it's possible. So the blackface thing seems to me. I mean, there's a balance here. You know, on the one hand, you don't want a lot of people, you know, aggressive stewarding of what is already an insanely over-policed situation, but you need some public statement and some public education about this because you know these are german dudes who kind of you know what do they understand of the long difficult awful history of race and ethnic relations in the new world and minstrelry and the rest of it they don't understand anything so they need to be educated i don't know what to do should they can you have a world cup game played behind closed doors would that be effective i don't think we then we're into we're already over policing this thing i mean again it would be a real shame, let me say, how what enormous pleasure it gives me when groups of fans abuse the goalkeeper as they're about to take a goal kick. I think it's an <laughs> intrinsic and really valuable ritual. Here in Britain, we tend to go, you're shit. Which works absolutely <laughs> fine, has the same effect. And, you know, again, maybe maybe the thing here is rather than banning is thinking about alternatives. Yeah. OK, I think we'll leave it there. I am very excited about our next guest, two-time NBA MVP. Just like Danny is the only one to have scored for Arsenal, that is two more NBA MVPs than anyone on this podcast can claim. Uh, he didn't jump on the soccer bandwagon. He drives it. Steve Nash is joining us after this quick break. Joining me now is Steve Nash. You know who Steve Nash is. I don't need to introduce him. Steve, thanks for joining us on Dummy. You're welcome. Great to be on Dummy. <laughs> that is not a reference to to our guest, just so you know. Uh, I know you're well, down in you Brazil. Uh, what, what, what games did you see? I saw the opener, Brazil and Croatia. I saw Argentina, Bosnia, and I saw Spain and Chile. Oh, wow. Great game. Yeah. I, I want to ask you, I, I know you're... You know, I've heard interviews with you before. I know you're a really thoughtful soccer fan. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the streets in Brazil right now. And I want, I want to get your take on sort of how, you know, as an athlete, how tuned in are these guys, do you think, to what's going on? And, and are they paying any attention to it? Uh, I'm sure you saw some stuff. But, you know, I guess you're trying to focus. Um, and it's not something you really have to deal with quite as much in the U.S. as a basketball player. But, you know, is that, is that something that interests you at all, uh, that, that sort of dichotomy between what's going on in the stadiums and what's going on in the streets? Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's the best of times than the worst of times. So, um, you know, to be honest, I didn't see any protests at all. I didn't feel it. I didn't see it. Um, honestly, I went to Brazil for ten, twelve days, and I didn't. It was almost like if you asked me if it was going on, I'd say I know. So, um, you know, I know there's elements of, of protest that I wasn't aware of, but I think more importantly, it's just that. The disappointment that the nation has of all this money disappearing and all these people that uh, have substandard quality of life, uh, while you know billions of dollars are being uh, siphoned away in perhaps the guise of new stadiums. So 
you can completely understand, and I think it's it's actually great that a country like Brazil, that that football is so deeply embedded in their day to day life, to not turn a blind eye to to what's right. So I, I respect people's concerns and even their awareness. So you know you you know you are a relatively short NBA player, I guess for the NBA, right? I, I don't I'm not trying to. Yeah. Just, relatively or just short yeah. <laughs> I mean but for a soccer player you'd be pretty tall and I you know mm. one thing I always hear people say is man if our best athletes if LeBron James played soccer we'd be amazing but you know you as a student of the game you know that you know Maradona Messi all some of the best players in the world were really short guys where do you fall in that sort of debate do you actually think that if, if guys like LeBron James were playing soccer we would actually have some of the best teams in the world or, or you know do you think that soccer is its own thing you know an athlete's an athlete i don't think you have to be tall to be a great soccer player if you are tall and a great soccer player maybe you can use it to your advantage but i know that any tall guy is not going to love trying to you know mark uh you know someone like messi or uh giuseppe rossi who's playing in a showdown i mean you're, it's just there's an advantage there because you know as you're taking your feet up and putting them down at a certain rate they're doing it twice as fast and they can therefore change directions uh, twice as fast theoretically as you so size can be an advantage in soccer for sure but so can a lack of size in some respects and it's a matter of the athlete and skill level and his ideas and how well he can interpret and read the game okay steve nash our listeners in new york city can attend the steve nash foundation showdown on wednesday that's tomorrow by the time you're hearing this at 6 p.m at sarah d roosevelt park in lower manhattan steve thanks so much for joining us on dummy Thanks for having me. Hope to see uh, a lot of you guys out there. Okay, we are almost at the end here, but before we go, let's do our Tiki Taka segment uh, where we bring up our favorite thing from the soccer world over the past few days. Danny, let's start with you. Yeah, so I saw a incredibly inspirational video that just put a huge smile on my face uh, last week. Um, a fan in Brazil uh, for his friend who happens to be deaf and blind wanted his friend to enjoy the World Cup as everybody else was. So he went out and actually bought a piece of plywood, bought some green felt, got some puffer paint, and created a football pitch that's about maybe three feet wide and two feet, or three feet long, two feet wide, and put goals on the end of it. And during the actual games, he's actually holding his hands and taking his hands around the field where the ball is. And the guy is actually experiencing the game as it's being played live. And his girlfriend, the, the guy that went out and did all the plywood stuff, his girlfriend actually essentially like kind of hits his back as well to show other events that are happening in the game. And when the, when the actual, when, when Brazil scored their first goal against, um, Croatia, the, the video is, was going on and, uh, he, the guy goes absolutely nuts cheering the goal. And it was just, it's just the coolest thing, you know, we, we, we look at all these, um, you know, the, the technology in the game and, and goal line technology and HD cameras and all this. And, and this guy literally can't see or hear what's going on. He's being kind of led through the game with, with touch. And it was just the, it was just the coolest thing ever. That's, that's amazing. I want to see that. Now, where can people find that? Uh, I think it was on the Telegraph or the Guardian. I'm not sure which one. We will have a link to that <laughs> on the show page. Uh, as they say, David, how about you? Uh, a little article by uh, the Guardian writer's Barney Rone, uh, which I read this morning, which has been the best response to um, England's um, awful performance. And he argues, instead of expecting, as usual, the players all to apologise to us, actually, when they come home, we should all apologise to them. And we should apologise to them because 
it's uh, we are responsible for creating a situation in which the state of grassroots football is hopeless, in which we've got a quarter of the trained coaches that you have in Italy or Germany, and which we're incapable of coming up with ways of thinking about public and collective projects. And that's not down to them. That's down to us. Okay, I like it. Uh, I'm going to call out Brian Phillips' story about watching the uh, the game, the U.S.-Portugal game, on Copacabana Beach in Rio. The reason is Brian is such a great writer, and he's, you know, I think he's he's the best American writer who writes about soccer. One of them, I, I'm going to say, because I have several favorites. Um, he's he's the best one who can't write for us, I'll say, for Howling, because he has a contract with Disney that won't let him. But I really love reading everything that he writes. He's got a real voice, and he wrote this piece uh, that, you know, one of the things that I asked James Montague about that I, I don't think it made it into the podcast was how do you find stories as a journalist in the most covered country at the most covered event in the world at the, at that moment? With Brian, it doesn't matter how many other people there are because nobody else will have his take. Nobody else will write the way that he does. Um, and so you should go to Grantland and, and just search for Brian Phillips. I know that pretty much everyone who listens to this probably already knows about Brian, but I think, you know, his work is really deserving of praise. So this one is about watching the, uh, the men's national team at Copacabana Beach. It's 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 the kind of easy throwaway piece that you just could 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 just totally pass by, uh, because really, what's special about that? You're on a beach watching a soccer game. But um, when he writes it, it's it's really great. Um, okay, it's got a lot of great details in it. A lot of soul. Yes, exactly, exactly. Thank you for for helping me sell that. That does it for this episode of Dummy. I want to thank our guests, Christopher Gaffney and Steve Nash. Thanks also to David Goldblatt and Danny Carbassian for joining us all summer. Alexander Abnos for his report on the U.S. men's national team. Thanks to Slate, Josh Levine, Mike Vuolo, and Andy Bowers for having us on board this summer. And thank you for listening. If you're not following us on Twitter or Instagram, please do. We are at What a Howler. This podcast was produced by Matthew Nelson with help from Ryan Katniss, Kira Deppenbrock, and Malena Barajas. The Howler Singers are led by Lindsay Elliott. He's a college buddy. They're all members of the choral ensemble Ghostlight, and they made our theme tune. All the rest of the music is made by the great composer Brian Kim, also a college buddy. My name is George Qureshi, and I will be back with you on Friday along with the rest of these dummies. Until then, happy World Cup. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.